right, so Joseph Smith had an experience in the woods in New York. He actually had an experience with an extraterrestrial. He probed me and then different ones of them come in and all of them probed me. And I believe that it was the Asani people. There are those who believe that life here began out there. But only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. Earth is a grand experiment. Far across the universe with a council of gods whose work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power, and there are many that now stand, and innumerable are they unto man. For as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. You wanted to learn how to integrate duality. You wanted to learn how to take light and dark and remove all judgment. Some believe that infants who die here become eternal gods out there. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 733 Return to Kolob, here is some of the fruit of that tree. And I've got a story for you today. You ready? You want to hear the story? All right, here we go. Once upon a time, there was a tree. Here is some of the fruit of that tree. No, not that tree. It will make you wise. Yeah, maybe it will, but... It's delicious to the taste and very desirable. Yeah, yeah, fine, okay, but that's not the tree I'm talking about. And it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. Uh, Okay, yeah, the the tree I am talking about does have fruit that can make people happy, but... And it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof, and I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I ever before tasted. Okay, yeah, uh, maybe I should just ditch this whole tree metaphor. I'm really just trying to talk about ideas that I really like. Yea, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. Now that just feels a little racist. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. Wherefore, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. All right, okay, whatever. I'm just going to flow with it. So here's the thing about fruit. Plants and trees are like all other forms of life on this planet, they developed strategies to compete for limited resources. Like animals, 
Plants are constantly competing for food, striving to produce offspring and battling against predators. They have developed an extraordinary range of strategies to survive. Um, yeah, isn't that what I just said? So, anyway, trees grow fruit that is sweet and delicious to the taste and very desirable, so that animals and birds will eat that fruit, seeds and all, and then go off on their merry way only to shit those seeds out in another location where those seeds can eventually germinate and grow. And, well, that's what life is constantly trying to do, right? To germinate and grow. But the fruit itself, tasty as it may be, or disgusting, not everybody likes the same kind of fruit, right? But that fruit is just, what? It's kind of a decoy. It, it's kind of like bait, if you will. It's something to attract another creature to those seeds that can then be planted and grow and... Now we will compare the word unto a seed. Oh no, not this again. Now if ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if ye do not cast it out by your unbelief, that ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. Okay, all right. So, what is it that I'm actually telling you here? Here's what I'm saying. Hello, my name is Glenn Ostland, and I think that every story that we tell ourselves about the nature of reality is an incomplete, imperfect fiction. Any story that we tell about the nature of reality could and should be updated the minute that we have better data. And we are constantly in the process of searching for and verifying better data. So even our best, most scientifically accurate stories about the nature of reality need to have some kind of asterisk next to them. So if you're interested in knowing what is true and what is false, and you think that the things that are true are good and the things that are false are bad, or that it's a waste of time to explore things that are obviously false, even if you don't really have any data to support your feelings that they are obviously false, well, then what I say is probably going to frustrate you because I have partaken of some of the fruit of a very weird, unusual, fictional tree. Now, I like the taste of this fictional fruit, but even more than that, the seeds of the fictional fruit have been growing in my soul. They've been helping me drop excessive, unhelpful, unnecessary judgment and criticism towards myself and others. They've been helping me feel more connected to life in general. They've been helping me feel more loving and compassionate. They've been helping me see with more clarity the relationship that exists between my thoughts and my feelings, my conscious awareness, and my unconscious programming. All this and more as the result of eating the fictional fruit of a fictional story that makes me think about the nature of reality and my own assumptions about reality from a vastly different perspective. Which is all to say that I've eaten some of this fruit and I've come here before you to shit out the seeds. I was about to say directly into your ear, but that would be gross, if it were real, but it's not. So please remember that as we proceed with this series, if this is something that you're interested in. So today I'm going to respond to a few listeners who have already taken the new survey on extraterrestrial beliefs, and I'd like to encourage the rest of you to go and fill out that survey as well. So let me share these survey questions with you, 
And later on at the end of this series, once I get more input from listeners like you, I'll share the overall results. All right, so I am going to read to you the first batch of questions that show up in this survey. So the way this works is there are several statements and then you respond how you feel about that statement. You've got five different options for answering it. You can strongly agree. You can mostly agree. You can be totally ambivalent, indifferent, neutral, whatever you want to call it. Or you can slightly disagree. Or you can strongly disagree. All right? (laughs) But you got to say it like this, strongly. All right? So here are the statements. Every story about the nature of reality is essentially an incomplete, inaccurate fiction. What do you think about that? Do you strongly agree? Mostly agree? Are you ambivalent? Slightly disagree? Strong, strongly disagree? Oh, I'm sorry, strongly disagree? Intelligent life exists on other planets in our universe. Intelligent life exists on other planets in our galaxy. Intelligent life exists on other planets in our solar system. Intelligent beings from other planets have visited Earth in our distant past. Intelligent beings from other planets are visiting Earth today. Intelligent beings from other planets sometimes communicate with people here on Earth. Extraterrestrial intelligence originally seeded the human race. Planet Earth is herself a living, intelligent entity that we simply do not fully understand. She is essentially our mother. The sun is a living, intelligent entity that we simply do not fully understand. It is essentially our father. There are many universes, not just this one that we're in. The fundamental building blocks of everything in the universe are overlapping fields of energy that fill the immensity of space. Life that evolved in other universes can communicate with life that has evolved in this universe. All forms of life, wherever they have evolved in the universe, are made from the same source energy as human beings. I have some kind of soul or spirit essence that is an immortal piece of divine source energy, whatever that is. My soul or spirit essence has lived other lives besides the life that I'm living right now, aka I believe in past lives, future lives, reincarnation. Some people really do have some kind of ESP or psychic abilities. Some people are actually able to channel extraterrestrial intelligence. Time, as we experience it, is essentially an illusion. Human civilization on this planet is much older than the Egyptian, Babylonian, and Assyrian civilizations. There was once an advanced race of ancient humans living in Atlantis. There was once an advanced race of ancient humans living in Lemuria. My soul has lived past lives on other planets in other star systems. Reality exists in multiple dimensions, not just this 3D experience we are living in now. And finally, there is some kind of shared intelligence, like as described when people talk about a collective unconscious or Akashic Records. All right, there are other questions on this survey that I'm not going to read right now that ask how you feel about some teachings of the Mormon Church, asking about Joseph Smith and connections here. But I ask a question, 
Which of the above questions that I just read would you like to know more about and why? And so I've picked three different responses from three different listeners, and I want to address those right here and right now. On to the next round. All right, so I asked the question, which of the above questions would you like to know more about and why? And so this first one comes from Matt, and Matt says, time being an illusion. I don't think it is, but I'd like to hear more why others feel that it is. All right, so I'm going to play a clip for you, Matt. This is the theoretical physicist Brian Greene from The Fabric of the Cosmos. It's just a little blurb about time. But what is the story of time? People say that time flies, that time is money. We waste time. We kill time. We try to save time. But what do we really know about time? Well, like this river, time seems to flow endlessly from one moment to the next. And the flow of time seems to always be in one direction, toward the future. But that may not be right. Discoveries over the last century have shown that much of what we think about time may be nothing more than an illusion. Contrary to everyday experience, time may not flow at all. Our past may not be gone. Our future may already exist. It turns out time itself can speed up or slow down. And events that we think can unfold in only one direction can also unfold in reverse. But how could this be? How could we be so wrong about something so familiar? And if time isn't what we all think it is, then what is it? Did it have a beginning? Will it have an end? Where did it come from? And here is Brian Greene again on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about time. The Joe Rogan experience. Here's the thing that I've always wanted to ask someone like you. What do you think was happening before the Big Bang? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a deep question and a, and, a, and a subtle one. And there's sort of two ways that I like to think about that question. One is it could be that uh, the Big Bang was an interesting event, but not the first event in the totality of reality. It could have been the first event that sparked the expansion of our part of space. But it could be that there's a grander realm of space within which we sit as a small part, and that grander realm may have been here for a far longer period of time. It may have experienced its own Big Bangs, maybe a collection of Big Bangs that may extend infinitely far into the past. So it could be that the answer to the question of what happened before the Big Bang is a lot of other Big Bangs or a lot of other quantum events that were taking place in a larger landscape of reality than we have direct access to. However, another answer is that the very question may not make as much sense as the words seem to suggest. We know how to parse that sentence. We know what it means to talk about the moment before the Big Bang because we know how to talk about the moment before your birth or the moment before the Civil War or the moment before any event that happened in the world. We fully understand the meaning of that kind of sentence. But it could be that when it comes to the Big Bang, the sentence actually doesn't mean anything. It could be that the Big Bang was the 
place where time itself started. And uh, Hawking himself had a wonderful analogy to get this across. He said, look, I'll dress it up a little bit. Imagine you're walking on planet Earth and you pass by someone. You say, hey, can you point me in the direction of north? I want to walk in the northward direction. They point you, continue to walk. You pass by somebody else. Say, hey, which way is further north? And they point you in that direction. But when you get to the North Pole and talk to somebody there and say, hey, how do I go further north? They look at you and say, whoa, that question doesn't mean anything because this is where north begins. There's no notion of going further north than the North Pole. And it could be that that spatial metaphor applies to time. Talk about a billion years ago or 10 billion years ago, but if you go to 13.8 billion years ago, the Big Bang, that may be where time started. And you can't go further back in time than the very origin of time itself. That freaks me out. Yeah. See, that, that's one that, that it gets in your head. And you're, what do you mean beginning of time? Yeah. Why would time have a beginning? Good. And it could be. It could be that time is an emergent quality of reality. i give you an analogy, boy. What I mean by that is we all know what temperature means intuitively. Something's hot. You feel it. Something's cold. You feel it. Your body understands those concepts. What physics has done is it's gone deeper into the concept of temperature and revealed that it is nothing but the average motion of the particles making up the environment. So if the molecules are moving really quickly, you've got a hot environment. If the molecules are really moving slowly, it's a cold environment. So temperature emerges from the motion of particles. So if you have like one particle, you can't really talk about it being hot or cold because you need a conglomerate. You need an agglomeration of particles to be able to talk about their average motion. And in that sense, temperature is this emergent idea that rests upon more fundamental ideas, the molecules and atoms that make up reality. Maybe that's true of time. Maybe time as we know it is a property that only makes sense in certain environments when there's enough stuff arranged in the right patterns. But fundamentally, maybe there are atoms or molecules of time, which when not arranged in the form that we are familiar with, don't yield time as we know it. Time itself may be a quality of the world that exists here in this environment, but doesn't even apply in other environments that are configured radically differently. Whoa. So one of the things that I learned from Brian Greene is that time and space are part of the same thing. This is why he calls it the fabric of the cosmos. And that we're always traveling forward in time. And sometimes we're also traveling in space. Like if you're just sitting still, you think that you're not moving at all, but you are moving through time. But if you get up and you start walking, you're not only moving through time, but you're also moving through space. And that the rate at which you move through space impacts the rate at which you move through time. So the experiment that they've done to test this is they take two clocks that are perfectly synced. And they put one of them on an airplane. And they put another one on the ground where the airplane's taking off. And then they fly that airplane around the world. And it lands. And then they come back and they compare those clocks to each other. And they are no longer perfectly in sync. They are slightly out of sync. Which is a way of demonstrating that space and time are actually part of the same thing. So the way that we experience time is... I don't know how you would say it. I, I don't totally understand it, Matt. I, but the way that we experience time is determined by our biology. 
It's determined by our brain. Kind of like the way that our eyes have these rods and cones and filter out colors that don't really exist in the outside world. They only exist the way that our brain recreates this image that we're seeing, that we're getting from the photons coming into our eyes. That so much of our experience of reality is based on what our biological constraints, our, our genetics, are feeding us. And the way that we experience time is one of these things. That's the way that I understand it. But I'm with you. I'd like to more. I'd like to know more about it as well, because it's a fascinating idea. All right. This next question comes from Nathan, and Nathan says, "I'd like to ask questions about aliens visiting Earth. I'd like to know why people believe this without credible evidence." Okay. I've got a question for you, Nathan. Do you really? Want to know why people believe that without credible evidence? Are you really interested in the motivations as to why people would believe it, or is this just a rhetorical device that is dismissive and saying it's stupid for people to believe things that there's no credible evidence for? Because if you're really interested to find out why people believe this stuff, it's not hard. You just talk to people that believe it, and you find out why. <laughs> what what is it about this? That speaks to them. You know, when when I was studying folklore in graduate school, I'd, I'd get really frustrated when I would talk with my friends, and they're like, "Oh, you're you're becoming a folklorist." Okay, here's this story. Tell me if it's true or not. <laughs> and I'm like, "I'm not. I'm not becoming a folklore detective. It's not about whether something is true or not. What I was being taught in graduate school was how are these fictions being used? How are they functioning?" What value are they providing in people's lives? Because if something provides value, they're going to continue to do it, and this tradition is going to be passed down from generation to generation. So look for the value, or look for the good. <laughs> look for what it's doing, rather than whether the form is true or not. So there isn't any credible evidence that says that aliens have not been visiting. The planet. There's no evidence, credible evidence, that says that they have been. So you've got to make a choice. And maybe you say, "I'm not going to believe it until it's proved one way or the other." That's fine. But if you're really interested in knowing why people believe this without credible evidence, ask, listen, and I imagine you'll find that it is speaking to them. It's it's reinforcing some kind of bias that they already hold. Confirmation bias, right? And that it's playing a valuable role that way, so that's what I'd say to that, Nathan. And I want to go back to theoretical physicist Brian Greene from that same Joe Rogan interview. A little bit、uh, after talking about the Big Bang, he talks about his views on religion and these different stories that people have. And it isn't exactly apples to apples with this aliens question, but it applies. It's similar. So take a listen to what Brian Greene has to say. Do you know William James's book,、uh, Varieties of Religious Experience? No.、Familiar? Yeah. So it's a book that William James, a great psychologist, wrote in 1902, and it was based on a series of lectures I think he gave in Scotland.、Um, and it is the most heartfelt and rational 
approach to religion and science that I think has ever been written, and yet most people don't know much about it. Because what he does is he goes through and he documents through his own research and through reading biographies and interviewing individuals the vastly different ways that people think about religion and why they think about religion and the value that religion has in their lives. And, and, and when you read that book, it doesn't convert me. I haven't changed my views on whether or not there is a God, but it has changed my views on the value of a religious sensibility, the role that it plays in people's lives. Now, look, it can be, you know, you talk to people like Sam Harris and, and, and you know, it's, it's a destructive force in the world. And it has been a destructive force in some ways, but that's not the full story. Right. A fuller story is that for some individuals, it gives a connection to a historical lineage that's deeply valued. For some individuals, it puts their life in a larger setting that allows them to be in the world in a more productive way. So there are a whole range of roles that religious engagement can play. The problem is when you start to pit it against scientific insight, then you run into trouble. But religion was never developed to give us factual information about the world. Religion will never give us the electron magnetic moment to nine decimal places, that's the purview of scientific investigation. And if you can keep these straight in your mind, there's a definite and powerful role for uh, a religious sensibility in the world. Yeah, I've, I feel like it gives people in a lot of ways a scaffolding for ethics and morality and allows them some alleviation of anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Some, a feeling of purpose. Is, but like you said, as long as it's not conflicting with rigid scientific reality, yeah, like right. scientific, provable scientific reality. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it's a funny thing. You know, Richard Dawkins, I don't know, have I've you had him, him on here. the program? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you know that his... Um, his M.O. in the world is very anti-religious. I, yes. I think he would agree with me on that. I don't want to put words into his mouth. Um, but um, I did an event with him in New York, uh, uh, the Beacon Theater. Uh, I don't know. It was maybe a year ago or something like that. And it was very interesting because in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, his views were very similar to mine. I, I felt, look, we don't agree in totality. But I was saying to him, there are times I go around the world and I will do things that are utterly irrational. I'll knock on wood for good luck. I'll speak to my dead father. I know that he's not really there. I'll pray to God on occasion if I think that I could use that backup. Not because I think there's some bearded individual in the sky. It's just a behavioral tendency that I find to be comforting and useful. And I said this to Richard. And he said, I totally get it. I was like, what? He was like, I totally get it. He said, he said in fact, he said, I don't like to sleep in a house that has a reputation as being haunted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, and, and, and for me, it was such a beautiful human moment. It was such a beautiful human moment where we were just like being human beings. Right. And, and he said, and then he said, we're both sinners. And I agree. We are yeah. both sinners in that sense <laughs> because we know how the world works. We know this doesn't make any sense. And yes, it's still part of somehow uh, how we behave in the world. And I think there's a value to recognizing that that is what it means to be human. You will engage in the world in ways that are not necessarily strictly adhering to some rational perspective of how the scientific world operates. I would love to see Richard Dawkins outside of a haunted house yeah, saying, right. I'm not going in <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Uh, uh. Uh. Yeah. So, so you know, um, it's all just to say yeah. that I kind of feel like 
there are many pathways toward insight in the world. There are many ways to live a life. Mm -hmm. There are many ways to come to terms with our own impermanence. And it's not as though something is right or something is wrong. It's a question of, is it useful to you? And I think that we have to be very open-minded in the kinds of behaviors that um, uh, that we allow to happen in the world. You know, um, you know, even Ramta, it's nutty stuff. Yeah. But if some of those individuals who go there find that it allows them to live in the world in a more productive way, alleviating anxiety, feeling like they're on a spiritual quest, mm -hmm. so be it. Yeah, know? that's the thing that some. I mean. It's hard for people to understand if you're not in that space, that headspace that they are. You don't need this structure. But for some people, even Scientology or something along those lines, it seems loopy on paper, can provide them with yeah. legitimate structure and, and benefit their lives yeah. in a tangible way that they could describe to you. Yeah, exactly. And, and my feeling is that um, if there was – I don't know this to be the case. Maybe some biologists will push back on this. But if there was a – a race of, for want of a better word, you know, Vulcan-like individuals who approach the world in a completely rational manner, evaluating the data, figuring out the most sensible course of action, competing against a crazy group of individuals like us who will come up with wild fictional ideas, gods in the heavens, you know, uh, demons haunting the world. I think it's the latter group that ultimately would triumph. Because with that kind of freedom of thought, you get novelty, yes. you get ingenuity, you get creativity. And so I feel as though this is part and parcel of who we are and why we have survived. And to sort of come at the world with a, a scientific club that's meant to smash away anything that disagrees with the scientific worldview is an unfortunate way of, of looking at the world. All right, and then our last question in this one, uh, Andrea asks, uh, past lives. I'd like to know more about past lives. I've had some memories of things and places that I can't explain. Yeah, I'm interested in this idea of past lives too, Andrea. Um, there's, a, there's a documentary series on Netflix called Surviving Death. It's a six-part series, and in the sixth and final episode there's this guy named Jim Tucker who works at the University of Virginia I think and he's been studying these narratives from children for uh, I don't know 20 plus years and these are children that have memories of former lives and there isn't any good reason why they should have any of these memories and he goes and he researches them he tracks them down I played a clip from Jim Tucker a year ago, and I'll play it again here, but I would definitely recommend going and checking out that Netflix series. But here is John Cleese, who interviewed Jim Tucker about past lives. So this is interesting. Now, this is Jim Tucker, who's an old, old friend of mine, and he's got lots of academic... Uh, well, tell us some of your academic uh, qualifications, please. Well, I'm a medical doctor, I'm a physician, oh. and I'm a board-certified child psychiatrist. I am the director of the Division of Perceptual Studies, and I'm also the Bonner-Lowry Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. So shut up and listen to me, more. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to talk to you because you know about as much about uh, reincarnation as anyone mm. on the planet, I think. Um, start off by telling me about 
Ian Stevenson and then why you got interested in yeah. him. Yeah, so Ian Stevenson was the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry here, um, having a perfectly successful mainstream career when he got intrigued by reports of young children who said they remembered a past life. And these were from all over the world and he went and investigated a number of them, got more and more intrigued, eventually stepped down as chairman of the department and focused full time on this work, um, looking mainly to see could the children's statements be verified mm -hmm. to confirm that the child actually did remember a past life. And um, he started this in the early 60s, and we've been going ever since, and, and now we've got over 2,500 cases. 2,500 yeah. cases. So what drew you to this? Well, I got intrigued by the question of life after death, uh, which is one that I think intrigues everyone to at least some well, extent. they ought to. Yes. <laughs> um, so the opportunity arose where I, I called here and, and volunteered to uh, give some time to help with their studies. And at that point, Ian Stevenson was in his late 70s and, and sort of unbeknownst to me, was hoping somebody could carry on this work with reincarnation memories. Um, I actually called about near-death experiences to begin with, but then my niche sort of ended up being with the uh, reincarnation memories, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So are those 2,500 cases, what can you say about them that's sort of pretty hard scientific fact? Well, in the strongest cases, we have been able to verify that the children's statements match with a past life and one of a stranger that the child and the family knew nothing about before the child started making these statements. Um, so we never take anything at face value, um, but we determine as carefully as possible what exactly the child has said and, and then we go looking to see. Um, and how do you how find out what the child has said? You ask the parents, friends? Uh, yes, the parents and the friends and sometimes the child him or herself. Right. Some of them will talk to us, some won't. Uh, but we go sort of statement by statement and, and try to be clear about what the child has said. And then you go to the village where the original person was? Well, that's right. So we start by studying sort of the, side, the child side of the case, and then we go to the previous life side. And in the international cases, it might be to another village. Um, here, it might be to another state or another town or, mm -hmm. or by email with another family and, and try to see what we can find out. Well, I said village because I tend to think of these things happening more in places where reincarnation yeah. is part of a religious faith. But you, yeah. you, you do get them from America. Yeah, I mean, certainly the cases are easier to find in places with a belief in reincarnation because people talk about them and then they're not uh, embarrassed to hear about them. That's right. So, I mean, Ian Stevenson had associates in various countries who were on the lookout for cases. Um, now, with the internet, the cases, the American cases, find us. So we get emails from parents all the time uh, reporting oh. what their children are saying. So it's it's. Yeah, used to people would criticize Ian's work and say that it was just a cultural phenomenon. Uh, and we now have proof that it's not just a cultural phenomenon because it happens here. Tell us one of the best 
best research mm. cases, just to show yeah. what the possibilities yeah. are? Well, one that I studied was a uh, little boy um, named Ryan who started talking about a life in Hollywood when he was four years old, and, and he would beg and cry his uh, cry and beg his mother to take him to Hollywood. Um, Where so did he live? He was in Oklahoma. Uh -huh. So eventually, she got some books out of the public library about Hollywood to try to help him kind of process this. And they were looking through one of them one day, and they got to a picture from an old movie called Night After Night. And he pointed to one of the guys and said, hey, Mama, that's George. We did a picture together. And then he pointed to another person and said, and that's me. I found me. Now, the first person he pointed to was George Raft, who was a, a well-known actor back oh, in the day. Famous, yeah. Uh, but the other one he pointed to that he said he had been was an extra with no lines in the movie. So Ryan's mom wrote to me to see if I could help figure out who this person was. Uh, and as we were working on it, she was sending me emails, sometimes on a daily basis, with all these statements that Ryan was making. So we got documentation of everything he was saying. And then eventually, with the help of a Hollywood archivist, we were able to find out who this person was. This archivist went to the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, got all the materials on this movie night after night, and there was one shot that included him and gave his name. Uh, a guy named Marty Martin, and Ryan had described quite a life which, to be honest, I felt was unlikely for an extra with no lines in a movie, uh -huh. uh, but it fit Marty Martin's life. So Ryan said how he had danced in New York and Marty Martin danced on Broadway. Ryan said that he then went and worked in the movies, which Marty Martin did mostly working on dance in the movies. Mm -hmm. um, he said that he then uh, worked at an agency and Marty Martin started a successful talent agency. Um, he described this life of, of going to Europe on ships and so forth, which Marty Martin did. He also said that the street address of his house had the word rock or mount in it and Marty Martin lived on North Roxbury. And then also one time he said he didn't see why God would let you get to 61 and then come back again as a baby. <laughs> um, and Marty Martin's death certificate actually said he was 59. But when I looked into it, I found census records and marriage listings and passenger lists that all gave uh, ages, which meant, in fact, he was 61 when he died really? in 1959. So, altogether, we were able to verify that over 50 of Ryan's statements matched Marty Martin's life. And Marty Martin was an obscure person who died in 1964, and then... So there was no information anywhere uh, uh, about him until you started no. to dig. Well, that's right, and, and, and now there is more on the internet because of this case, but wow. at the time there was nothing on Marty Martin on the internet. So, what conclusion do you have? Well, what we can conclude from that case is that, most conservatively, we can say that Ryan had knowledge of this life in the past. Now, his experience of this knowledge was that it was memories of a life he experienced, and that's certainly the most straightforward explanation. Uh, but, but clearly we have very good evidence that, that he had knowledge of a life that it would have been impossible for him to have gained through some sort of ordinary means. Uh. Uh, so, so that's the kind of case that we are trying to explore. Can we rule out uh, 
that the knowledge that fits that there were no ordinary means where the child learned it, and in a case like this, well, there can, can be, be no sure ordinary means. No, absolutely. There not. has to be some kind of psi explanation somewhere along the line. Uh, that's right. It, it certainly seems to be something um, psi or, or psychic, like you say, that, to, to explain it, because it, there's no uh, way to explain it away. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So hopefully this brief episode today gave you a taste of what this survey is like. And uh, if you're interested in filling this out and adding your voice, I'd really like to collect all of this data and be able to see, just to better understand the listening audience here, what, what I've received so far, so far is really interesting and it's all over the place. So I'd like to get more input. I'd like to hear from you. So please go to the website, infantsonthrones.com, look at this episode and you'll find a link to the survey and add your voice to the mix. And uh, next Monday, I'm going to be sitting down with Shalice and Mike from Mormons on Mushrooms to start going into some more detail about some of the fruit, some of the shit, and some of the seeds. (laughs) And remember, absence of evidence may be evidence of absence, but ignorance of evidence is most definitely evidence of ignorance. You know who said that? I did. Right, Peter? Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic, and I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Keith, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down arms of the night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. So